the Pentecostal church can have an emphasis on the spirit on Pentecost Sunday, and I do. But I want you to know that I found my studies shifting from what would be a, a, a typical Pentecostal sermon. So if you'll stay with me, I think that you'll, you'll appreciate where I'm going with this message here today. We're going we're, we're gonna to stand and honor the reading of Scripture, but we're going, for my text is going to be first, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 18 in a moment, but we're just going to glean that some, but we're going to only, we're going to draw that down for the sake of the reading of the text right now. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians 4 first, verse number 6, and when you find that, if you'd stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and thank you visitors for being among us today equally as much. We are so appreciative of your sharing your day with us as well. Here in verse number 6, it says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I could preach right there. Amen? Now let's go to verses 17 and 18, Vakel, of chapter 3. It says here, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is liberty. Amen? But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, there's a promise that often gets overlooked in the context of Pentecostalism. Here's a promise. We're going to... We're going to just develop that in a moment. We're going to back up now here to let me find that particular verse that I'm looking for. Verse number 7 and 8. Let's go there, Vaco. We'll wrap this up here, and then we're going to glean it here in a moment. Verses 7 and 8. It says, But if the menstruation of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses... For the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration, other versions would say, the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious? So let's read that eighth verse together and we can take this. The word menstruation there in the original language is translated even by the King James Bible as ministry or service in many other passages. So we're going to go ahead and substitute ministry there. So how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious? So today, on Pentecost Sunday, 2021, I want to speak to you about the ministry of the Spirit. I think that's a good place to say amen. So would you pray, and what a powerful prayer Joe's already prayed. We just simply add our agreement, God of heaven, let our hearts be prepared to receive the engrafted word of God. Let preaching come easy in this house today. What I believe my heart is truly prepared. I pray the people, Father, will have their heart prepared to receive. I can sow. I pray, Father, that they will receive. God, you'll add water to it, and it'll bring increase for your glory. That's our prayer. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's children said amen and amen. Thank you so much for standing in honor of the reading of the text. You can keep your Bibles open, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because we will find ourselves kind of just walking down in this very quickly here in just a few moments. So I want to 
kind of go ahead and just begin to do so because I'm going to put you in the context of Pentecost here in a few moments and kind of what that means. It, many of you may not be familiar with even the word, what it actually means to us and how we have application and also how we have historical connection to it. I'll do that in a few moments, but I want to just go ahead and set the context here as we see the Apostle Paul's writing. So let's read this and let's let it develop for just a moment because there's a validation that was being made initially, and that's what I want to begin to start with here. It says in verse 1, Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Now, remember Paul as he is writing to Corinth He's writing for correctional purposes on uh, both occasions, and not necessarily just correction, but there were some things that needed to be corrected. There was also instruction, and to do so, he, he was, in one sense, validating his ministry to the Corinthian people. He simply says, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you. So in essence, the, he's saying here, do we need someone to write a letter validating who we are in relation to uh, you know, our relationship with you? He then said, well, I want to remind you, verse 2, you are our epistle. He said, it's written in our hearts and it's known and read of all men. And in essence, then, what's happened in you is, has affected the, the writer here very deeply. And when he's, when he's uh, continuing to minister, people are aware of what's going on in the lives of the Corinthians. And they know that Paul had a, a particular part of this. Let's go on down. Connect with it. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, written by us, or excuse me, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart, and such trust have we through Christ to God. Now, Pastor, what does that say? Help me make sense of this text of Scripture. The apostle here is simply addressing the Corinthians as a collective group, and he's saying, as I'm getting ready to write to you about some things that can even be sharp, he said, I don't necessarily need anybody to send a letter of commendation. You know our fellowship. You know that I hold you dearly in my heart. And you know the greatest commendation that we have to who we are as ministers is you. What he's saying is your changed life, your changed life validates who we are. Because we were, let's go, and I, I, I can't say one without the other, in this it says, as, as you receive the word, the Spirit of God worked mightily in you. And when the Spirit of God worked mighty in, mightily in you, the Corinthians, he's saying that validates that we were sent by God. Does that make sense to you here today? So if you could kind of connect. Now let's go a little bit farther because we're going we're to expand that for just a moment. Because So who, who were they? Read on, on down. It says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves. Paul's saying it's not we ourselves to think anything of ourselves. But our sufficiency is of God. I can say that today. My, how many of you can say that with me? My sufficiency is of God. I'm complete in Him, right? In me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But the good that's in me is because He put good inside me. Amen? Verse 6 says, though, who has also made us, catch these two words, able ministers. Remember the able ministers of what? The New Testament. 
And he says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. So see if we can connect this. Paul said at first that he is validating his own ministry, not verbally, but through their lives. Through the change that's been wrought in the lives of the Corinthian people, that validates who he is. And what is he? He's an able minister. He's been called of God to be a minister of the New Testament. But I love what he said, not of the letter, because how many of you know that even in the New Testament, the letter can kill? You know what that means, the letter, the epistle, the writings, the commandments, the teachings, that if it's not, if, if it's not worked and ministered by the Spirit, Paul's going to go into a dialogue of what he sees, the giving of the Mosaic law, how it could lead to death apart from the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he even alludes to this here in verse number 6. He said, we are not ministers of the letter or of the letter alone. He said, but we are ministers of the power of the Holy Spirit. So the reality is, is that the letter can kill. Without the revelation of the Spirit into the heart and the mind and the purpose of God, thou shalt not or thou shalt can leave you uh, in, a, in a barren place. It can leave you overwhelmed, feeling like you are never good enough. But when you have the, the revelation that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit and you see God's love for you and His purpose and His intent, then suddenly that very letter that if it's ministered without the Spirit eventually leads to consequences condemnation rather now that it's ministered by an able minister of the gospel the new testament who's anointed of the holy spirit to minister to you the truth then you receive the truth of god and as that truth gets wrought inside your heart and life then it produces a change inside you so without the power empowerment of the spirit then we have no ability to walk in the revelation we have no ability to uh, accomplish what god has uh, expected of us the, the word the word will not work in us mightily if we don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Does that make sense? So you kind of see it. I want you to see. And so even something, Paul, even as he goes into these next few verses of Scripture, Paul even uh, puts it in contrast in a moment. We're going to see that uh, something as holy as the divine commandment. Apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it will produce bondage. And it will bring you to uh, a need of freedom even from the religious bondage that's now been placed upon you. I've observed in the many years that I've been in the ministry that people can replace the bondage of sin with the bondage of religion. You can go from shackled in sin and iniquity until you are become shackled in religion. And how many of you know Christ came to set us free? Free from both free from the power of sin and its dominion over us, and also from the power of religion can, to constrain us and hinder us from being who God's called us to be. Man, I feel Jesus right there. So the commandment alone is holy and just, but the individual without the power of the Holy Spirit will not understand God's purpose, nor will he have the necessary power to walk in his way. So an able minister is one who ministers the letter, but he doesn't minister the letter apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. He ministers the letter in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he trusts that the Spirit's going to work in the lives of the hearer. You know, I've learned as a pastor, I learned this as a father. I cannot be the Holy Spirit for anyone. 
I can't go home with you. I can't ride in your T-shirt front pocket. I can't be in your purse. I can't be in your car. I can't tell you, do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. I can't, I'm not going to put you in any type of uh, category where I measure you up against a certain standard that we haven't expected. The only thing that I can do is trust in the power of the Spirit of God. That when you hear the Word of God, that you can receive it as what it is, the Word of God, and it will work mightily in you when you mix it with faith. Man, that's good preaching right there. Let's go further. So then Paul says a contrast. So I'm, going, I'm taking you just on a little bit of a dialogue to, to unlock this text because it's towards the end that we begin to really see where we're going. So then he begins to give us a contrast here. So he's already brought validation that, he, that they, their changed life produced validation of Paul's ministry. Paul now addresses himself as an able minister of the New Testament. He ministers the New Testament adequately, that he ministers the Word of God sufficiently. He's rightly dividing it. He's not using it destructively. How many of you know you can use the Word of God destructively? The very thing that can heal and deliver can also hurt and wound. Are y'all out there today? If you're not uh, wise and, get, and yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul said, I'm an able minister of the gospel. I'm ministering the New Testament, not of the letter alone, but of the Spirit of God. And then he begins to give us a contrast between something that's very unique, something that is divine, a holy oracle that came forth out of the heart and the mind of God towards something that is present in that generation and is now continuing even in our generation. And so let me let me just see if I can put this together for you here as we read this on down. Verse 7 was part of our text, so let's read it on down. But if the ministration of death, the ministration of death, Pastor, what's he talking about? Written and engraven in stone. So automatically when we see this, we can understand that he's talking of the Ten Commandments. So he's talking of the first of the 613 commands of the Torah, the top ten, those that were given to Mount to Moses on Mount Sinai, when the finger of God took the two plain tablets of stone and etched in them the commandments of God. And so he writes them on stone. And so Paul, though, here says it was a ministration of death. It was written and engraven in stones. It was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which his glory was to be done away with. How shall not the ministry of the Spirit and be rather glorious. So let's read on down for a moment, then let me expound upon it. For if the ministry of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Paul's right there. So here for a moment of time, let's see if I can put this in context and why that I wanted to speak to you from this point on what we call Pentecost Sunday. It's because Paul is addressing the actual giving of the Torah, the law. He begins to contrast himself from even that of Moses. He's saying that it was a divine oracle that was given by God. Anybody that's ever read in Exodus 19 and 20 when God spoke, 
Ten Commandments to the children of Israel when he came down on the mountain that day. Now, we know there was a failure made by Israel, and those original Ten Commandments were later destroyed. Moses goes back up on the mountain. He spends an additional 40 days in the presence of Almighty God, and there, without eating food nor drinking water, he receives the oracles of God. And there he also, again, takes the tablets that are etched by the finger of God. So he's, Paul is alluding to this. So he's looking back at one of the most faithful days in the history of humanity when God gives man a divine oracle, the law of commandments. It's a holy commandment. There's no fault in the commandment. The fault is in the people's ability to keep the commandment. Paul addresses this in numerous passages throughout the Word of God. Now, why am I ministering this on what we call Pentecost Sunday? Well, so we know that the Spirit of God, if you've studied the New Testament at all, the Spirit of God made a lasting impression to the early church on the day of Pentecost. It's already been alluded by both Jace and Jojo on this platform. In Acts chapter 2, they were both drawing attention. Acts chapter 2, it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come. The word Pentecost in the Greek simply means 50th. So to help you understand, the Jews celebrated a feast. It was the second of the three groups of feasts that the children of Israel were to leave wherever they lived in the land of Israel and travel wherever God said, I'm going to put my name at, which would be his house in Jerusalem, and they were to come and worship the Lord in front of, and with, with their families. And so the first was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There were three that took place in that first additional week. And it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the Feast of First Fruits, but it was also Passover. And then the Bible says in the Scriptures that they were to count seven weeks plus one day, 50 from Passover, and that they would then return back to Jerusalem to celebrate the harvest, the wheat harvest. They were to celebrate the wheat harvest. And so we find great prophetic significance that Jesus died on Passover and he sent the Holy Spirit 50 days later, the day of Pentecost. So now Paul, does everybody understand that a little bit now? Does that kind of broaden the picture for just a moment? So when Paul is referencing here, he's looking back into the history of the people of Israel, and he's saying, let's remember that day that God came down, God sat on the mountain, there were thunderings, there were lightnings, there was fire, there was a voice that was spoken, that the, the Ten Commandments were given, God gave the law, but through Paul's other writings, we understand that it eventually led to death. The people found themselves incapable of keeping the law. It did not produce righteousness. He begins to contrast this. He said Moses had the glory of God upon him. It, there was a glory associated with it. Moses spent that 40 days in the presence of God and he had the Shekinah glory of God upon him that when he came down from the mountain, his face did shine with the presence of God. And so it was a powerful historic moment. But Paul then begins to say that I want to tell you as glorious as that was, he said it dims in comparison to the day in which we live right now when we live in the generation of the ministry of the Spirit. For the ministry of the law produced death, but the ministry of the Spirit produces life. Glory to God. 
Now, let me go a little bit farther. One of the most significant moments that took place there for the children of Israel was often overlooked by so many on that day of Pentecost. So I'm going back, Pentecost Sunday, I don't want you to miss this because it, it's a part of what I'm preaching, but I'm going to lead you into something here in just a moment. With the scripture says in Acts chapter 2 that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were within one accord in one place. When there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house wherein they were setting. So we've got this picture image in our mind of this group of approximately 120 worshipers who are gathered somewhere in the outer court of the temple or some, perhaps even in a small room adjacent to the temple, and they're following the commands of Jesus to wait or to tarry. They're worshiping, but they're also all Jews. So they are in expectation. They know it's Pentecost. They know what Pentecost represents. If you've studied the Feast of Pentecost, you know that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that one of the offerings made that day was that the priest went into the holy place and he stood there with bread, one loaf in either hand, and he waved it before the Lord to commemorate the coming of the law or the giving of the law. And so and we see this in our mind. I remember the day I saw it for the very first time by the revelation of the Holy Spirit that I could look as I could almost like, a, have, has anybody ever seen any of the programs that we have today and we, we, we use these, uh, the drones when they're filming and that, you know, they'll, they'll be filming people right here and then all of a sudden the drone will lift up and it'll zoom way over here and there'll be a whole other group of people. I remember many years ago when I was studying and I saw this for the first time in the theater of my mind because I saw a priest with the, with the bread in one hand and I saw worshipers gathered in the temple and they're celebrating and they're remembering the giving of the law, the law that led to condemnation. But there were 120 men and women gathered just a little bit farther in the temple and the Spirit of God went right over that priest and went right over that group that were celebrating the giving of the law and the Spirit of God ushered in and the Spirit of God God wrote the Word of God on the fleshly tablet of the heart for the very first time in human history. And thus Paul is looking back at it and he's saying, yeah, it was glorious when God came down on Mount Sinai. But he said, let me tell you, we're living in a day of divine glory. We're living in a day unprecedented in the history of mankind when the Shekinah glory and the power and the presence of Almighty God can be in and upon every one of us, right? And so you have the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. So that contrast, if anybody's ever studied Paul's writings, you know that the law, though it was a holy document, it was good, but the intent of the law was to be a schoolmaster. It wasn't intended by God to produce righteousness. Are y'all out there? It was intended to reveal the need for someone of divine, holy nature to impute righteousness to all who would receive by faith. Are y'all out there? So very quickly, you cannot, listen to this, you cannot be declared righteous by simply obeying the command. So you, nothing's changed. You can, there, there's a lot of commands in the New Testament. And you can't come in here and, and, and come uh, off the streets out of sin and you come into the church and we can give you the, the scriptures and we can teach you Ephesians 4. We can teach you principles of faith. I can teach you how to love your spouse, how to raise your children, all the commands that we see even in the New Testament. But let me tell you, church family, but if you're not genuinely born again, born from above, born by the Spirit, it has no merit, no value, and no lasting change. It's only when the Spirit of God 
comes into your heart and life, does an authentic change get worked? And so Paul is saying, let's compare it for a moment. He said, the law led to death. He said, but the ministry of the Spirit leads to life. It leads to righteousness and you being declared righteous by the Lord. So let's go a little bit farther. The ministry of the Spirit excels. Why does it excel? It excels because the ministry of condemnation is passed away. Let's pick up the text again for a moment here. In verse number 10, let's read it again. For even that which was made glorious had no glory. Much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. The ministry of the Spirit excels today, does it not? Are you all out there today? Give me just a little bit more volume on this if you would hear this to help me hear myself for just a second more. For if that which is done away was glorious, how much more that which remains is glorious? So the ministry of the Spirit excels because the ministry of condemnation has been done away with. Verse 13 said that it was abolished. And so the ministry of the Spirit, verse 11, remains. So let me me try to set this for you for just a moment because I want you to see this again. And we're going to put it together. And I'm going to take you especially here in just a moment to the real uh, intricate workings of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will work in the heart and life of a believer. But I want you to see for just a moment that there isn't life in the letter alone. You can hear, you can hear, and you can hear. But it's only when and what the Holy Spirit reveals that will produce life inside you. Did y'all hear that today? Let, let me say it again. How many know you can hear sermon after sermon, lesson after lesson, text after text? But it's only when the Spirit gives life that it produces life inside you. The breath of God. See, I want to go back to the Genesis for a moment. God took Adam and formed him from the dust of the ground. He fashioned him in his own likeness. He put shape to him. He molded his body into a rugged physique like mine. And shaped him right there. But he was nothing more than lifeless clay. That the winds of this world would have blown over and over. And he would have eventually went crumbled right back to the dust out of which he came. He only had the ability to get up out of the ground. And begin to relate and to know and to commune and to worship. When God breathed in him the breath of life the pneuma of God, and then he was made fully in the likeness and the image of God. And so you can come in here and we can do our best to mold you and shape you into what we think you ought to look like. But I want you to know today, you will still be void of the righteousness of God that's in Christ Jesus if you don't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. Life only comes by the Spirit. Right? And when life comes in you by the Spirit, there is a, a marvelous change that's worked. And I want to show you this real quickly by going to another text previously mentioned in Paul's previous epistle. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Read it with me for just a moment real quickly today. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. As Paul looks at the Corinthians, remember, he's saying, your life validates that I am an able minister of the gospel. What happened to this group of heathen folk? Let's read about them. He said, you know that the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, are they? 
Don't be deceived. Neither are fornicators nor idolaters, not adulterers nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Verse 10, neither thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. Paul made just a brief list. God had a list, the Ten Commandments. Here's approximately ten uh, characteristics of human beings and uh, their lives. They're thieves, they're covetous. He could have made an inexhaustible list of, of, of sin and what it produces in the lives of an individual. But look what Paul said, verse number 11. He said, and such were some of you. But what happened to the Corinthians that produced such a change? He said, you were washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Stop right there and pause. He said, you're washed, sanctified, and justified. Man, I'll tell you what. I know in the generation of the church today, people don't understand language like I use sometimes when I say I get happy on this. But I want you to know I get happy when I know that I was dirty and filthy and sin, but now I'm washed by the regenerating power of the Word of God, washing me clean in the eyes of God and by the atoning sacrifice of His blood. I've been sanctified and set apart, called of God for His divine purposes. God had His eye on me when He mowed me and shaped me and formed me, and now He's destined me to be used for the glory of God. And now I am justified in the name of the Lord. You can walk around all day long and say, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner like ever. I am not a sinner today. Let me go ahead and go out there on record and tell you today, I am not a sinner. I was a sinner. I was a heathen. I was an idolater. I was a pagan. But today I'm washed. Today I'm justified and I'm sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. How did God do it? By the Spirit of Almighty God. Hallelujah. So us Pentecostals, yeah, we get happy today, but we don't just get happy when we talk in other tongues. I get happy when I think about how God saved my soul, filled me with his spirit, changed my life forever by the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit that's come upon my life. Glory to God. And Paul's looking to the Corinthians and saying the law couldn't do this. Let me tell you, religion can't do it either. The 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God can't either. There's nothing, it's the spirit of the living God working the word of God in the heart and life of an individual that produces change inside of you. Lifts your entire countenance, causes you to live life differently. Let me go a little bit farther. Unbelief hinders the work of the spirit. Do you believe that today? I do believe this as we see this in this passage here. Paul begins to allude to the Israelite people. He said they couldn't look to the end. Why? Verse 14, their minds are blinded. What blinded them? 14th verse of the, 13th of the third chapter of 2 Corinthians. What blinded them? Unbelief. He said until this day there remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in through Christ. So it was a veil. Rather, it was on the face of Moses. Paul said now it's on the heart. So Moses was read, but the people could not see beyond the letter. They could not see the true glory of God that comes from Christ. But if they will repent and believe, then that veil can be lifted and the Spirit of God can work mightily in the heart of any individual and reveal Jesus to that individual. When I receive the gospel, the Spirit works in me, bringing me not into bondage, but delivering me from bondage. Did y'all hear that? Not bringing me into bondage, bring, delivering me from bondage. I believe that the Spirit of God working in your life will bring freedom from sin and its dominion over you. Do you believe that? I believe that. Do you believe freedom from guilt and shame? 
because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Are y'all out there today? And you can be free from, the, from, from, from legalism, and you can be free from the bondage of religion by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Then Paul then begins to share about an open face. And this is where I'm going to take this and begin to really narrow it, because here's the heart of the message for just a moment of time. So then Paul says, well, how is this accomplished? Verse 15, let's read these last four verses real quickly again. But even unto this day when Moses is read, that veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. This is where it gets the greatest revelation begins to be contained in verses 17 and 18. Remember the sixth verse that we read in chapter 4. I want you to see this. We're going to put this together to close this message. On Pentecost Sunday of what the Spirit of God. I came here today as an able minister. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. I came here today with a quiet confidence, not in myself, because I'm not sufficient of anything in myself. I came here today to say I'm quite confident in God's transforming power in the life of a believer. I'm totally confident that when the Word of God is sown in your heart and you receive it by faith and you welcome the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, a mighty transformation can take place in your life. That you can be literally transformed into another being. So radically changed that people can not even recognize who you are today in contrast to who you used to be. Are y'all out there today? So we go, let's go a little bit farther. I want to show you this. And so it says here in verses 17 and 18, it says, Now the Lord is that spirit. Hallelujah. Thank God for the Holy Spirit today. Say, Pastor, I'm still just a little bit, uh, you know, new to Pentecostalism and the emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit that you've been teaching us about uh, on Wednesday night and about the emphasis this coming Wednesday night. You know what? You shouldn't be. You need to embrace that. It's a work. It's a gentle work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But let me tell you, it's not the only work. And it's not even the beginning work. The beginning work is a transformation in the heart and life of an individual where your sin nature and your sin dead is quickly removed and that you are made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you have eternal life dwelling on the inside of you right now, that if you are born again, let me tell you today, if you are authentically and genuinely born again, Romans chapter number 8 says this, that His Spirit has joined with your spirit. Did you know today that if I were to die, if in the, before I could give an invitation at the, midst, at the end of this message, if God were to call me home, I want you to know my spirit would immediately be with him. The spirit that is housed inside of this body today is more living than anything that's on the outside. And through that spirit, I commune with the Father. He sent his spirit into my heart, crying, Abba, Father. I've said this before, and I'll tell you one more time. If you know God only as the big man upstairs, then you don't know God. Because when the Spirit of God comes into your life, He begins to reveal the Father to you. And you say, well, how do I see the Father? I see the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. See, God was veiled in the days of Moses. He sat in the, mercy, in the most holy place on the mercy seat surrounded by two angels. It was there that God said, I sit. And the only person that ever had access to the presence of the living God was the high priest, and only once a year could he go into the presence of God. And even then, his own heart was full of uncertainty that he would even uh, live past the day because of the holiness of God and the reality of sin in his life. But let me tell you today that when the blood of Jesus Christ was spilt on the cross, I want you to know today there is a reason why that the hands of God, the invisible hands of God, tore that veil. 
It tore that veil so that not only could you have access to the presence of God, but it not only allowed you in, but it let God out. Glory to God. He's not bound to a temple in Jerusalem any longer. Let me tell you today, you can go anywhere all over this world. You can be in uh, great edifices like we have here at First Assembly, or you can go in the middle of a field in Africa, and as long as there's an able minister anointed of the Spirit of the living God who is sharing the seed of life, the Word of Almighty God, I want you to know that the power of the Holy Spirit will be present, and people can be changed by the glory of Almighty God. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of the spirit. Let's go a little bit farther. So then he said, he said, the spirit, the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, glory to God. He that the son sets free is what? He's free indeed. But we all, with, if it was written by a southerner, it would say you all. Come on, that's funny right there. Verse 18. But we all, with open face, with an open face, I behold as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of God. Get ready to close. I'm going to share this with you. It's a powerful passage of Scripture. It speaks about change, transformation. The actual word here in the original language is the same word that's used. Listen to this in Romans 12 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. The word transformed in the original language is, I can't pronounce it, but I'll do my very best, metamorphia. It's from which we get our English equivalent of metamorphosis, where a change can be worked. I want to share with you real quickly, you know, when I've said this many times in days gone by, but when I think of a metamorphosis, I immediately think about a caterpillar. Or I think of about a caterpillar that crawls, for whatever reason, one day stops and enshrouds himself in a cocoon, and then the miraculous power of creation works a change in the caterpillar, and what comes out doesn't look anything like what went in. It, the caterpillar crawled in, but he flew out. You say, Pastor, man, I just crawled in here today. You may have crawled in here today, but you can fly out by the power of the Spirit of God because God can change your life so radically that you will never be the same again, glory to God. But it's face to face. What is face-to-face? Face-to-face is when you and I as believers know that we have access to the presence of God. Face-to-face comes in many different ways. For Moses, it was when Moses went into the presence of God and took down the veil. For you and I, face-to-face is when we behold the glory of God by hearing the word, by worship, by prayer. By reading and meditating on the Word of God. James called this a perfect law of liberty. James said that you behold it and you look into it. So here Paul is kind of folding all of these analogies together. And he said it's like an open face. And you're beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. And when you behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord, he said something marvelous begins to take place. The marvelous thing that begins to take place is you begin to be changed by the power of the Spirit of the living God. You begin to be metamorphosed. A metamorphosis begins to take place, a transformation. The actual word also is transfigured. The inward you begins to be the outward you. 
It's a divine work of the Holy Spirit. It can't be done in any other way. It can't be sent off to a laboratory and produced. We can't send you to any type of school or religious institution. It's only when you come face to face with the glory of Almighty God that true change is at work in your heart and life. And I tell you what, I believe in the power of the Spirit of God to change people. Do you believe that today? I don't believe in just the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon me, to fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I can speak in a divine language. I do believe that, and I am prepared with these other pastors on Wednesday nights to pray and lay hands on you and believe equally as much as they will that God's going to fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that, but I want you to know I also believe the Spirit of the living God produces change inside of my life, transforming me into the person God wants me to be. You know, my life could be, your life can be just tainted by the old nature. I'm going to close this out just from the heart for just a moment of time. I believe that as we grow in grace, we ought to become more Christ-like. We ought not to grow sour. We ought not grow uh, old and, and edgy and, and angry if you're genuinely born again. Now, for some reason, Shane looked at me and he said, Pastor, it talks about being old right here. I did catch that, Shane. I just moved quickly to the fat and flourishing part. But I want you to know today, the Spirit of God is ever at work in your life, changing you into something that He wants you to be and someone that He wants you to be. And who is that? The Bible says that we're to be changed into the image of God's dear son. Did y'all hear that? Is that heresy? No, I said the scripture says that God's designed for us to be changed into the image of God's dear son. That means how he lived, I can live. How he loved, I can love. Are y'all out there? How he showed compassion to people, I can show compassion. How he overcame frustrations and prayed himself through the difficult days of his life. I can do that as well. Are y'all out there? Because his spirit is working inside of me, changing me. But you've got to continue to look into the perfect law of liberty. And when I thought about this, I was just reminded there's so many different ways that we look at the presence of God. But there's one in particular that I want to draw your attention to. I really believe in the renewing of your mind by the Word of God and studying the Word. I do believe that. Do y'all believe that today? I believe in the life. And I'm getting ready to close, but I've got to close with this one final particular story. I want you to see this real quickly. Something I've shared a long time ago, but I feel compelled to share it here today. So I, I just, but, but remember, even this can be the letter if it's not revealed by the Spirit. Even red letter editions, right? You see red letters, that means it's the Gospels or even the epistles of the apostles, that when I read it and I contemplate on it, it can, become, it can become the letter that can lead to death. So I want you to see for a moment of time, I want you to take the word. Now remember, our intent here, it, there's an intent that we should have that when we go to the word of God. But, but, but we've got to shift it. We've got to see something differently. Many times when we go to the Word of God, we go to the Word of God and then we see things that are addressed in Scripture about our character or about our conduct. And if we're not careful, all we will find ourselves doing is seeing the flaws in our own life. Mm. Thou shalt, too late. Thou shalt not, definitely too late. 
wow, that one's a struggle too. All of a sudden, the only image that you're seeing is your image. But that's not God's intent. God's intent is that you will see the image of his dear son. And when you see the image of his dear son, there is a miraculous work of the Spirit of God in your life that begins to produce change inside you. There was a movie many years ago that I saw with my children. Now, unfortunately, in the woke generation that we have today, they tried to remake it and messed it all up entirely. And I'm not even talking about the Lone Ranger. I'm talking about the Lion King. You remember the original one? Remember young Simba? Remember Simba was the heir to the throne. You can always remember Simba sitting there beside Mufasa. Mufasa was the Lion King with the roar that would, you know, just silence the hyenas. He was masculine and strong and it was authoritative. And little Simba was talking with his father one day from the ridge overlooking the pride lands. And he said, Dad, he said, where is our kingdom? And Mufasa looked at him and he said, Simba, wherever the light touches, that's your kingdom. How many know nothing's changed? Wherever the light touches, that's our kingdom, glory to God. But we also know that in the plot, many of you, and I, you're, I'm going back into some of your, some of, you, some of you, it's your childhood. For some of you, you were a grandparent taking your, your, your grandchildren, or you were a parent like I was taking my children to see the movie for the very first time. But we all know what happened, that there was a brother of Mufasa, Scar, who wanted to be the king. And so in a, in a fateful day, he tricked uh, Mufasa, and he actually killed Mufasa. He was run over by the, the wildebeest, uh, the, the, what was that, a, uh, a stampede. And, but what did he do? He blamed Simba. How many know that your adversary is an accuser? He's an accuser of the brethren. And he accused Simba and condemned Simba, and Simba didn't believe that he was the heir to the throne any longer. He believed that he was responsible for his father's death, and he ran beyond where the light touched to the dark places of this world. And over a period of time, he came across two uh, little individuals. How many around? Timon and Pumbaa. I ought to be teaching children's church today. I'm feeling this in my spirit. I'm having this. Uh, I better be careful. I'm going back into many years of reading stories to my children. But with this, for a moment, as I see this in my mind, you remember what happened there over a period of time they showed his growth. He begins to hang out with a meerkat and a warthog. And the one that was destined to rule the pride land forgot about who he was. He's eating grubs and worms dug out of the log while the enemy is destroying his inheritance. And so one day, the little freaky monkey showed up. And you know who that little freaky monkey is? That's the able minister in front of you today. Because the able minister, the little freaky monkey, Rafiki, hit him over the head. When he popped him on the head, he said, why did you do that? He said, follow me. And he took him past the thick grass. And there was a shimmering pool with the light of the moon caressing upon it. And he said, look in to the pool and tell me what you see. And when Simba looked into the pool, 
he saw the same individual that he had seen for the many years, the one that had been accused, the one that had ran, the one that was responsible for his father's death, the one that had never reached his potential. He said, all I see is my reflection. And then Rafiki, the little freaky monkey, the little freaky preacher in front of you today said, you need to look again. And when he looked again, rather than seeing his own reflection, he saw the reflection of his father. And when he saw the reflection of his father, face to face, glory to God, something rose up on the inside of him. And he realized he wasn't a warthog, he was a lion, and he was destined to rule and reign. Let me tell you today, when you stop seeing yourself in the face, in the mirror, and you begin to see Jesus and the glory and the majesty of he who died on the tree, who who went to the depths of hell to redeem you, to raise you up and make you as he is, seated in heavenly places where you can rule and reign, I want you to know that's when change will begin to be worked in your heart and life. You'll be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who dwells inside of you, glory to God. I thank God that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there's life, there's change. And what is it? There's transformation. How many of you believe you can be changed today? I believe you can be changed. One final scene, just real quickly. Daryl, show me on the platform. I didn't have them put this on the screen, but I love that account. We may have to go home and watch it later tonight. Don't get the woke version. It's no good. <laughs> That's funny, but true. So Simba, once he has a divine revelation that he's not a warthog or a meerkat, he's not responsible for his father's death, he's simply destined to reign. He then goes back to the pride lands. Everybody remember that? And it's a war. How many of you know it's a war to take what's rightfully yours and to be who God's called you to be? But when you know what he's done inside of you, I'm telling you there's no enemy that can stand in front of you, right? There's nothing. There's no weapon. There's no warfare. There's no tactic. There's no scheme. There's nothing the adversary can throw at you that can cause you to stumble when you're walking in the anointing of God and the spirit of God. You can be all that God's called you to be. And so after they reclaim the pride lands and the, the famine and the drought is broken and the rain begins to fall, Simba looks up and he remembers seeing his father when he was just a little boy. You know where I'm going with this. There on Pride Rock. He remembers seeing Mufasa walk up there, destined to reign, to rule, to be authoritative, to be who God had called him to be. He had that image in his mind, and he knew that now was his time. And he walks up that, and with a roar that's heard all throughout the Pride Lands, Simba has reclaimed his place as the rightful ruler, the son of the king, Mufasa. That text, the Apostle Paul, I know I'm using a worldly analogy, but sometimes God uses things like that. 2 Corinthians 3 says a change can be worked in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can be who God's called you to be. So on Pentecost Sunday today, I came along to tell you, open face, open face, worship, 
open face. Read, open face. Get alone with God and pray, open face. Yes, there are times that your faults are brought to your mind because we do need to repent. When we sin, we immediately repent, don't we? But you can't live in the past. You've got to live in what he has done inside you for your future. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed today.